When I preached a sermon series on 1 Peter last year, it was easy enough to compare and contrast Peter in the four Gospels and in the book of Acts with the words of Peter in his letters. It's harder to do that with the Apostle John because John plays a much less prominent role in the Gospels than Peter. I mean, Peter was so outspoken and impulsive. But still, John is one of the big three disciples, along with Peter and John's brother James. The two brothers are the sons of a man named Zebedee, but they also have a nickname in the Gospels, the Sons of Thunder. (laughs) Sounds like a professional wrestling duo, doesn't it? But I assume because they have that nickname that neither James nor John was any kind of shrinking violet. In fact, we see a little bit of their thunderousness in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 9, for instance, Jesus and the disciples are passing through Samaria. Samaritans, you may recall, are distantly related to the Jews, but there is no love lost between the two nations. They are enemies. So they were passing through this Samaritan village, and Luke tells us that the Samaritans did not welcome Jesus and the disciples. So, James and John, the sons of thunder, they have, a, they have an idea. They say, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? <laughs> to burn them up? I mean, for not welcoming them. These Samaritans weren't attacking them with physical force. They weren't using violence. They weren't threatening them with harm. And what about turn the other cheek or do unto others or love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. James and John wanted to use supernatural power, if possible, to murder these people. What would motivate that kind of response if not hatred, anger, wounded pride, a lust for vengeance? Regardless, Jesus rebukes them for even suggesting it. But there's another place in the Gospels in which these two brothers get into hot water with Jesus. They ask Jesus, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. Naturally, the other ten disciples are outraged by their uh, request, and who can blame them? Have James and John learned nothing about humility from Jesus after all this time? What about, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth? Or, the last will be first, and the first last? Or, greater love hath no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends? What would motivate this request, if not pride? We want to be recognized and praised and appreciated as your number one and number two disciples. We want to bask in glory. (laughs) And they also showed a spirit of covetousness. They were likely afraid that if they didn't get those two prominent seats next to the king, 
Someone else would. They, didn't, they certainly didn't want any of the other ten disciples to be basking in the glory that they thought belonged to them. I bring these two episodes in the lives of James and John to your attention because, gosh, they, it, it, they make these brothers seem a lot like a man that we meet in Genesis chapter 4, a man named Cain. Yes, Cain, the very person that John warns us not to be like in today's scripture. Cain and Abel, you may recall, were the first sons of Adam and Eve. Cain was a farmer. Abel raised livestock. They both offered a sacrifice to God. Cain offered some of his crops, but Abel offers the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. God accepted Abel's gift, but he did not accept Cain's gift. Suffice it to say, Abel's gift was more generous than Cain's, but even more, the motivations of these two men were very different. Different. We can tell that by Cain's response to God. He is angry and jealous. He is angry and jealous enough to murder his own brother. And do you see the pride there? He perceived that his brother was getting something that he deserved. Why wasn't he getting credit for his gift? Why wasn't he getting glory for his gift? So, weren't James and John acting a lot like Cain? I ask because listen to what John says in today's scripture. And yes, this is the exact same John that's in the Gospels, only about 60 years later. But look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And then verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Okay, but haven't I just shown you that John himself was guilty of these same things? He was a murderer in his heart, and he would have been a murderer in real life if Jesus had let him get away with it. John hated his enemies. He was filled with pride. He wanted glory. Did John's own murderous thoughts and prideful actions back when Jesus was on earth prove that John wasn't truly saved? Not at all. We, we see this in several places in the Gospels, but one example is the night of the Last Supper when Jesus says that 11 of the 12 disciples were already saved because of their faith in Christ. Jesus implies that only Judas wasn't saved. And if you read John's Gospel, you'll see that the Apostle John refers to himself repeatedly as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Clearly, Jesus did not condemn John for that, those sins that I described earlier. He did not hold John's sins against him. On the contrary, he loved him. And John himself knew and experienced this love of Christ in a profound way. I want that to come as a relief to us. <laughs> Because we know our hearts. We know how often we fail to live up 
to the standard of love that John describes in today's scripture. Listen, for instance, to his words in verse 16, which are really just a paraphrase of Jesus' words. John writes, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And when he says the brothers, he means the brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in Christ. He means fellow Christians. We ought to lay down our lives for one another. Speaking of which, there was a video last week that went viral. I know some of y'all saw it. It features a 17-year-old young woman from Bradbury, California, near Los Angeles. Her name is Haley Morinico. The video was taken from security camera footage at her house. This teenager heard her dogs in the backyard going crazy, barking, and uh, it was on her back patio. There was a brick wall in the back of the patio. Haley thought that her dogs were barking at another dog, you know, as dogs do. So she went outside to see what was going on, and she saw a brown bear, a mama bear with her cubs walking on the ledge of the wall. The dogs were just below the, 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 the bears, the bear, uh, on, the, on the patio below, and, and the mama bear was taking swipes at one of the dogs. These dogs didn't know the danger they were in. You don't mess with a mama bear with her cubs. I'm not a Boy Scout. I was never a Boy Scout. Josh, do you ever mess with a bear with her cubs? No. No, that's right. You don't do it. Everyone knows that. But in the video, you see Haley run out onto the patio and push the brown bear off the wall, scoop up one of her dogs in her arms and shoo the other dogs into the house. Everyone is okay. Haley, her dogs, and even the bears. Now, in case any of y'all are thinking about shoving brown bears, please don't do it. In fact, Haley and her mother um, were interviewed, and Haley said, don't do what I did. You might not have the same outcome. Thanks, Haley. <laughs> I, I will avoid messing with bears. I think I'm just going to leave them be and let them do their own thing. A lot of people have either praised this teenage girl for her courage or criticized her for being crazy. But I don't think she was crazy. I get it. I have beloved children of my own, and you know I have the sweetest dog ever. I wouldn't let a bear attack Ringo. Or even Lisa. <laughs> and Haley is the same way. She said, I see the bear. It's grabbing my dog, Valentina, and I have to run over there. She's a baby. And the first thing I think to do is push the bear. And somehow it worked. No, I completely understand what this teenage girl did. She wasn't thinking she was feeling, and what she was feeling was, 
great love for these beloved animals that belong to her. And in today's scripture, John says that's the kind of love that we're supposed to have in our hearts for our brothers and sisters in Christ. The kind of love that just comes out when you're not even thinking about it. Can you imagine loving someone so much that you're willing to risk sacrificing your life for that person without even giving it a second thought? That's the kind of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, in this local church that we're supposed to have. This doesn't mean that we don't also show extravagant love to non-Christians. But the Bible says that our love for our fellow Christians comes first. They are family. Now, turn to the person on your left and say, I would shove an angry mama bear for you. Do it. (laughs) Now, Now, turn... Turn to the person on your right and say, I would shove an angry mama bear for you. (laughs) Okay. Now, be honest. Are you telling the truth? (laughs) Because remember, we're not talking about shoving an angry mama bear for our own children or for our beloved spouse, or even for our beloved fur babies. (laughs) In fact, ask yourself this, is there someone in this church right now that you're angry at? Is there someone that you've gossiped about recently? Is there someone in this church that you've said mean and judgmental things about, or maybe just thought them in your head? Was it me? No, if so, don't tell me, please. I... (laughs) I don't want to know. My, my, my ego can't take it. But, but would you, think of that person or those people, would you shove an angry mama bear even for them? Because you've got to admit, this is a frighteningly high standard of love that John gives us. And somehow, he says, we're supposed to test ourselves against this standard. If we live up to it, that's one way that we can know that we have eternal life. And John says in verse 19, reassure our hearts before God. Yet often, as John's own experience attests, we fail to live up to this standard. John himself, as we've seen, failed to live up to this standard. And sometimes we look at our lives and we see how we don't measure up. And verse 20 describes what often happens. Our hearts condemn us. We think, if I'm really saved, why am I thinking and talking and acting like a lost person? John recognizes that sincere believers are bound to feel this way from time to time. We can be plagued with guilty consciences. Our hearts can condemn us. So what's the solution? What do we do when we've already sincerely believed in Jesus, yet we don't feel saved? because our hearts condemn us. What do we do? John gives 
gives us a couple of clues in today's scripture. First, look at verse 23. John says that our confidence before God is based on keeping Christ's commandment. And, and he writes this, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. See, this commandment isn't simply about what we do. Please notice, it's also about what we believe. In fact, it's mostly about what we believe. Faith in Christ comes first. Believe in Jesus and then love. Indeed, as I've said a few times during this sermon series, love always follows naturally from genuine Christian faith. Paul makes this point in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith comes first. And then faith, if it's genuine, will always be lived out in love. And this is what John means in verse 18 when he says that we are to love indeed and in truth. What truth is John referring to? He's referring to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth that apart from God's grace, we are helpless sinners who can do nothing to bring ourselves into a right relationship with God. The truth that God has done everything necessary to make salvation possible. The truth that our righteousness before God depends not on our works, but on the finished work of Christ on the cross. The truth that Christ gives us his righteousness as a free gift. The truth that our good works are never a way of proving our worth before God or paying God back for his grace or adding anything to the finished work of Christ. The truth that there's no good work we can perform even after we're saved about which we can boast or for which we can take any credit. The truth that even the good, we, good works we do are planned by God and made possible by the Holy Spirit. The truth that even the desire to do good works comes from God. As Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Apart from this truth, we will never be able to love the way John says we ought to. As an example, look at verse 17. This is just after John says that we're supposed to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? What happens when we attempt to love in this way without also believing in Jesus and loving in deed and in truth, which means remembering what Jesus did for us and believing it and remembering the truth of the gospel. I can tell you from personal experience what happens when you try to love without 
without uh, believing in Jesus and remembering the gospel. In my line of work, I'm often asked to help people who come by the church office in need of financial assistance, to pay rent, to pay utilities, to pay for gas for their car, to pay for groceries, you name it. But here's the thing. Sometimes, even when I help, I am not doing it in love. Even if the action, the deed, looks indistinguishable from love, it's not. Because in my heart, I'm feeling judgmental. Like, what did that person do to mess up their lives so badly? They need to get their act together and show me that they deserve the help that they're asking me for. Or I believe that they're lying to me, they're trying to take advantage of me, they're trying to pull a fast one on me. But that's my pride and anger, because I'm a lot like Cain sometimes too. By contrast, when I love in deed and in truth, when I remember the truth of what Jesus did for me and believe it, I tell myself something like this. God did not wait for me to get my act together before he intervened to help me. He did not wait for me to prove that I deserved anything from him before he helped me. He did not wait for me to become lovable before he loved me. In fact, whatever good thing I possess, whatever good thing I may have accomplished in life, it all comes from him. It's all grace. Indeed, the old saying is true, there but for the grace of God go I. So who am I to feel judgmental and hard-hearted? Who am I not to extend grace to others when God has shown me only grace upon grace. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 7 that there's a direct correlation between the extent to which we've experienced God's grace and forgiveness and mercy and the extent to which we love others. They go hand in hand. Loving in deed and in truth means remembering the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness that God has shown us. All that to say, if our hearts condemn us because we fail to love in the way that John describes, the solution is this. Believe the gospel. Nothing else kills our pride and anger and helps us to overcome our Cain-like tendencies, like believing the gospel. And when that happens, John says, something really good also happens. Um, Look at verses 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Once again, John is simply reiterating a promise that Jesus makes in several places in the gospel, including the following. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, 
uh, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. In the moment I share this promise with you, I feel the urge to qualify it, to nuance it, to tell you that it's not quite as straightforward as Jesus makes it sound. After all, Jesus teaches us that God isn't going to give us something that isn't ultimately for our good, that isn't in our best interest. And the Bible says, Jesus says, that we often don't know what is good for us and what is in our best interest. Only God knows. And we don't know how our answered prayers might affect everyone else in the world or affect the future. Only God can keep track of those things. And I want to, I want to tell you these things and qualify Jesus' promise in this way and John's promise in this way so that I can protect you from the, the pain of unanswered prayer. What happens when we pray for something and God doesn't give it to us? It can hurt. But I read something this past week from a theologian named Frederick Dale Bruner, and it really got me thinking, and, I, and it helped me, and I hope it helps you too. He writes the following about Jesus' promise and John's promise. We carry around heavy bundles of wishes that never become askings. We talk to ourselves about our problems in the form of much thought, worry, and sleeplessness. We might talk about our problems with those close to us, too. But even we Christians are strangely reluctant to talk about our problems with the Father. Is he right? Do we carry around heavy bundles of wishes that never become askings? Do we talk to ourselves and talk to our friends about our problems more than we talk to our Father? I do, <laughs> and I'll bet you do as well. Why? Well, one reason for our reluctance, John says, is because our hearts condemn us. Brothers and sisters, it's not supposed to be this way. Let's believe the gospel. Let's believe in Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God works all things together for good. Our Father is not against us. He is for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's time for us to go to the throne of God with renewed confidence, renewed boldness, renewed perseverance, and tell God what we think we need and ask him to give it to us. As the old hymn says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Tacoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Tacoa First. We have live in-person worship every week, and we also have online worship. Please see tacoafirstumc.org for more information.